0: You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Well, it's good to be here this morning. I want to uh, take this opportunity, if uh, you're guests visiting with us, I want to uh, thank you for coming on out. I want to uh, thank Brian, too, in that uh, kind of last-minute change in the order of songs this morning. And having spent the last few weeks going through First uh, and Second Corinthians, I just felt the message we just had in the song that we were participating in today really was the message that Paul was trying to convey to those in Corinth. As many of you know, we're starting a new series today. Uh, We're going to be going through the book of Corinthians. So, kind of kicking that off, I do want to spend a little bit of time with some background and history on the letters that Paul wrote to the church. But before we do that, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Uh, As we uh, heard Devin taking us through communion this morning. What an amazing God you are, not only that you would be cognitive of us, but willing to do and go to the lengths that you went to so that we could have a relationship with you. As we spend uh, the next few weeks looking at your church in Corinth, I pray that we can be inspired, we can be motivated, uh, we can be encouraged, uh, just knowing what a a long-suffering, gracious God you are when it comes to who we are and sometimes the shortcomings we may have in our own lives. but Through all of that, when we were at our worst, you were willing to send Jesus Christ to die for us. And, Father, I know for those of us that are disciples that understand that gift, we will be eternally grateful. Father, I love you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be starting off in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians was actually the fourth epistle that Paul wrote to the churches. And it gives us an incredible overview of the early church and a lot of the struggles they had, both from a doctrinal standpoint... And when it came to their own personal walk, their own personal purity. The uh, capital city of Achaia in southern Greece was approximately, population was approximately 700,000 people. And with that, two-thirds of that population were actually slaves. It was an incredible area of commerce. And as you can see where it's located on the map, Major Harbor, on both sides, you have an isthmus there that, uh, with that, they actually would take some of the larger boats when it came to their cargo and they lay down rails or logs so they, they could actually roll them across that little peninsula there area to kind of shorten down the shipping routes and that kind of thing. But with it, there was all kinds of businesses brought into town. It was a commercial and religious center. It was incredibly wealthy because of the commerce and the sea trade. And with that, as um, we've seen through history and the different generations, it's amazing what can go on in these types of harbor cities with people coming in and traveling from all over. Corinth was a community that was known for its lifestyle. It was incredibly sexually immoral lifestyle. Uh, there were a lot of things that would even be viewed as taboo in our liberal society today. And with that, one of their main temples was the Temple of Aphrodite. She's the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. And needless to say, this temple promoted all kinds of unhealthy excess. Rome was very aware of what was going on here. As part of the Roman Empire, means of taxation and obviously the money that would come in with that. The thing that's kind of interesting about Corinth is some of you may know this, some of you may not. But the word Corinthian actually meant to be sexually immoral. The Greek author Aristophanes coined a new Greek verb, which was to Corinthianize, meaning participation in sexual practices, moral sexual practice. And there's some other synonyms, the synonyms that came out of it that were kind of interesting as well. If I was a Corinthian, I'd be maybe a little concerned, but again, based on the culture and the normalcy of the things that were taking place there, maybe not. But to saying to act like a Corinthian was used as a synonym, synonym for being a fornicator. Corinthian girls was synonymous with prostitution. There's a Roman historian by the name of Strabo who spoke of a thousand temple prostitutes practicing their trade in Corinth during its peak time of prosperity. Corinthians were aggressive and confident. You know, it's, it's amazing. They had a, uh it's kind of like the Olympic Games, it was something that was, In light of the Olympic Games, the second most participated in athletic competition. They prided themselves on their physical stature, their ability, their prosperity, and ultimately, again, thinking that they could shape life in any way that they wanted. Just an incredible degree of pride. That, That potential and that prosperity brought in all kinds of entrepreneurs, tradesmen, artists, philosophers in search of wealth. And by New Testament times... There were at least 26 separate sacred places in Corinth. Many were temples of the gods, of the Greeks, and the Romans. There was also a center for your Asian mysterious types of practices and religions, and archaeologists actually found a Jewish synagogue in the midst of all that as well. Now, Paul's Corinth, Brian mentioned this last week, but I thought it was worth mentioning again, is that that period of time in Corinth was something that we would equate today to New York, Los Angeles, or Las Vegas of the ancient world. And the church in many ways was a mirror image of the diversity and the craziness that was known as Corinth. The uh, church in uh, Corinth was established around 50 to 52 AD by Paul during his second missionary journey, and Paul taught there in the synagogue until... Jewish opposition got to the point where they basically drove him out of town, at which point he started to engage the Gentile population. And he spent about 18 months evangelizing and teaching there in Corinth, which we can see in Acts 18, verse 8. The church in Corinth, heavily influenced and plagued by many of the social ills of its community surrounding it. And when we think about it, if you take the time to actually read through the book, you'll see it really mirrors what we're dealing with today. And a lot of the situations we have in our world today, whether it's in the cities that we live in, what we have in media, TV, social media, any of the different things that we've got going on, the excesses and the craziness and the self-centeredness really mirrors today what we've got going on in so many different ways. The purpose of the book ultimately was to remind the Corinthians, as we heard in the song, that guys, in spite of everything that's going on, you have been set apart. Jesus Christ came for you personally and demonstrated to you the way to walk, the things to do, the things that you should or shouldn't engage in, how to be a light in the midst of all this craziness and stay focused on God. Today, the letters to the Corinthians are still current for each and every one of us. And you think about what you see in the news today, all the violence, the terrorism, the crazy politics, success, money, the things that we're called to target You know, the celebrities in our lives today, these letters are every bit as significant today as they were when Paul was speaking to the church in Corinth. And ultimately, that being set apart is something that we can rejoice in when we embrace God and we live in accordance with what Jesus has established, knowing that one day, doesn't matter who you are, what you believe, what your stance in life has been, judgment will come. And every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the significance of these letters, is the need to really know and hang on to these things as well. The outline of the book, I wanted to run through this quickly for you, just kind of give you an overview of what it is that's taking place. There was a lot of things going on that plagued the early church. Sectarianism. There was a excessive attachment to a particular sect or party, especially in religion. We know that some in, Cephas, some in uh, Chloe's household had notified Paul. There's, there's issues. People are getting caught up in uh, this following individuals and losing sight of Christ. Some follow Peter. Some follow Paul. And really understanding that the only one that we're called to follow, it doesn't matter how it's spoken, what the preacher looks like, whatever it is that's going on there, the thing that we need to be focused on is the message about Jesus Christ. There was sexual morality. We see that in chapter 5. There was litigation among disciples. Disciples were going to secular court and suing one another rather than bringing things to resolution along the ways that Jesus established throughout the Gospels. There was sexuality versus spirituality. Using spirituality and grace as a means to continue to live the way they lived as Corinthians. And then in chapter 7 through 16, Paul addresses a lot of different questions that the church has, which really, as we go through these, we'll see isn't a whole lot different than some of the things we're faced with today. His stance, the biblical stance on marriage, divorce, remaining single. What true freedom looks like in chapter 8. Women in worship. How do you navigate that? The abuse of the Lord's Supper. Spiritual gift problems. You know, there were divisions and factions based on the different gifts that people claimed that they had. And again, it became about self rather than about Christ. There were those that didn't even believe that the resurrection had taken place. And Paul spends a ton of time helping people understand what happened. And the individuals that witnessed what happened. And the need to embrace the fact that not only did Jesus resurrect from the dead... But if we live in accordance with what Jesus established, we too will resurrect from the dead and spend eternity in heaven with God. And even addressed issues with a weekly offering. A lot of these are things that we've never seen in the church, right? Some of you got that. Why do we need to know all of this? Because again today, the situations in our world really aren't any different. L.A. really isn't any different. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. How do you feel about the South Bay Church? And this is kind of rhetorical. I'm not looking for you to raise your hands. I won't be calling on you. But when you think of your church, do you get excited or depressed? Do you think of the church's strengths or weaknesses? Do you think of what's happening or what is not happening within the church? Do you think more about what your preacher's wearing or how he's saying things rather than what he's saying? Do you think about how the singing moves your heart or the fact that they didn't sing your favorite hymn or your favorite Christian song or secular song from iTunes? How do you feel about your church? How do you feel about those who are part of your church? Imagine with me for a moment that this is your church. A church filled with divisions and factions. There are preaching cults where church members favor one particular preacher over another. Imagine a church filled with sexual morality. Some of the members of the church are visiting prostitutes. One church member is even having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Imagine, if you will, with me, a church where believers don't work out their problems. Instead, they sue each other. Imagine a church where debates rage on topics like Christian liberty, men and women's roles, prophecies and speaking in tongues and on top of it all imagine a church where the lord's supper is abused and a significant number of people within that church don't even believe in the resurrected christ the church i just described is the first century church of corinth a church that the apostle paul planted think about that the apostle paul this is the church he planted Now, does that say something about his leadership or his church-building abilities? Think that through. How do you feel about your church? Do you feel any differently? Perhaps as you sit here this morning, you might be a little bit encouraged that, you know, things in your church aren't nearly as bad as you thought they were. But regardless, the question that begs to be answered here is, how did Paul respond to all this? To this unlovable church that only a controversial talk show host like Jerry Springer could love. I mean, think of the fodder in that church for Springer. He could go, he could do an entire season on just the members of the church in Corinthian, or the uh, church in Corinth. Paul surprises us and he responds with optimistic thanksgiving that leads to deep convictions about the power of the cross. Paul starts with a greeting. Kind of a short one. And he doesn't waste any time with this incredible expression of gratitude for his brothers and sisters in that church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1. But he does transition very quickly as well to dealing with the foolishness that was at hand there. He starts out, I appeal to you. I beg you. I urge you to come to an agreement. An agreement of unity based on the conviction and the understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Our Lord is let's go ahead and turn to first Corinthians 1 verse 18 First Corinthians 1 verse 18 it says for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being or to those who are perishing but it's the power to us who are being saved for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. So Paul brings up an important point right here, for the followers of Jesus Christ. He reminds them as he reminds us that there are two ways to see the cross. Foolishness or wisdom, and it's very clear it's black or white. You know, I look back to my childhood, my teen years. You know, you get those warnings as you're growing up. Don't go here, don't do this, don't do that, that, or the other. And it's amazing how we can ignore that direction. I don't know why, and some of you, are, I know some of you are going to laugh at this, um, not the fact that I was in band, but in being in band, the only... Seriously? <laughs> totally lost my train of thought. That wasn't the funny part. But I remember um, band was kind of where I got my freedom because my mom and dad really had no idea as to when practices ended and when they should anticipate me coming home. And there were a number of instances where after band practice in the evening... I can think of two in particular that I almost died. And I also remember very specifically the direction I got, which was to come straight home. One night I decided with one of my buddies, you know, yeah, this this back when the mini trucks were a big deal. You teens are going to have absolutely no clue what I'm talking about. But, you know, they were lowered and dropped and had all kinds of crazy fenders and paint jobs and all that good stuff. And I was in the back of my buddy's, uh, I think it was a Datsun truck at the time. It wasn't even Nissan yet. And uh, we had a bag of oranges, and we decided we were going to go out on Azusa Avenue, which is a pretty major highway in West Covina, and I was going to throw oranges at the windshields of oncoming traffic. I don't know why we thought that was a good idea or why we even thought it was cool. And I should have given a lot more thought to my placement, because there was a median, which would have made things a little bit more difficult for the individuals that ended up following us after I smacked the windshield with a few oranges. But I remember standing up in the back of this truck, and I smacked this Chevy Impala that was really tricked out, Lord, crazy paint job, all that good stuff. There were a carload of guys that weren't super happy with what had just happened. And I happened to do it at an intersection where we were able to do it and pull a U-turn and follow us. Now, they had an eight-cylinder engine, we had this little four-banger Nissan, and my buddy was scared out of his, you know, mine. And he throws this hard right-hand turn into the first street that we go, and I'm still standing up in the back of the truck. I fly out, land in ivy, which, thank God for that. I, you know, back then I was weighing about 99 pounds, so point of impact probably wasn't that much on the ivy. But I landed literally right next to a, one of the old-school metal sprinklers, and if I had been like four or five inches to the left, it would have gone right through me. But, you know, it's amazing how we can get these warnings, and there's these messages we hear, and there are these signs that go on in our lives, and how we think we know better, and we ignore it. And this is exactly what was going on with the church in Corinth. You know, as I I matured in life, there's this transition where it's just stupidity to thinking, you've got it all dialed in, you know what's going on. You know, as I stated, as a youth, didn't really accomplish a whole lot. Did well in school. Had major self-esteem issues, but there was a point in time where I started to buy into my own propaganda about how awesome I was. I, you know, I would transitioned into management at Santa Monica Ford. I was a closer for them. And then actually, within less than a year, transitioned into director of sales of the second largest Ford dealership in the United States at the time. 1989. New home. New baby, Shailene. I had a monthly guarantee, which was unheard of in the automobile industry, and I had one of the first three Probes in Southern California. And some of you are, what the heck's a Ford Probe? Well, it didn't last very long because of the name. It was supposedly going to be the replacement for the Mustang, but it was front-wheel drive. The Mustang Fisciano's got their skivvies in a wide, and needless to say, it was a very short run of that particular car. But it was cool. I'd literally have people pulling up in me next to in, next to me in Ferraris, wanting to know what the heck I was driving. So I thought I was way too cool. Success in the workplace. You know, when it, when it got right down to the important things, not so much at home. I wasn't successful in my marriage. needed marriage counseling, and that didn't help a whole lot. Wasn't a, uh, was, I was not really a success when it came to the significant things in life. My parenting, the relationship I had with my kids who were five and two, at the, or actually at that point in time, Shailene was a newborn. Stephen was about two and a half, three years old. Not much power in these areas or success in these areas that were really significant in life. Areas that I needed help in, but I didn't really understand what or how that looked like. And it takes us to the power of the cross, the power of the crucifixion. How incredibly sobering Paul's message was to the Corinthians. There were those in their midst that not only understood the power of the cross... But they understood by seeing the Romans' demonstration of that punishment firsthand. Those that were in opposition to Rome being nailed to a cross and displayed publicly along the streets. And Paul reminds them of the power of the cross. The power, the real power in this world is found in the cross. The crucifixion. And for them, they understood when Paul talked about the foolishness of the cross, it was something very blatant in the face of those that were to hear the message. Paul writes of the power, again, of God's power in turning the least likely actions or situations into the most powerful, salvation-accomplishing outcome because of a foolish God. Why would God come down on the flesh? Why would God die for us? Why would He take on human form? And as we heard in Devin's communion, awesome job, my brother, just the, the situation there with being mocked, being spit on, being humiliated. So that we could have a relationship with him. In verse 9, Paul says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. This is a quotation from Isaiah 29, verse 14. And the context of that verse is particularly important to the understanding of this passage. That in Isaiah's time, the nation of Judah had made an alliance with Egypt in preparation for a a war, an incoming invasion of Sennacherib, and rather rely on the power of God to protect them. And they had seen this protection. They had seen this deliverance over and over and over again, generation after generation after generation, time and again. And they knew what the outcome would be. The great kings in the past that had sought the way of God had ended victoriously, where the kings that sought out the wisdom of the world, the ways of man, historically lost. And the king of this time, Hezekiah, decided to submit his way to God and ultimately ended up winning the Bible. And this verse reminds us that sometimes the methods that appear wisest, prudent, or even obvious can often be wrong in the eyes of God. The power of God is so superior to all earthly wisdom In verse 20, Paul says, Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of the message that was preached. Right now, I've got a short video I'd like us to watch. Just kind of keeping in mind, what is the message that is preached? What is it that Jesus Christ came to warn us about? And then we'll pick things up right after the video. Hey! Hey! hey what's going on? Some joker wants to race. <laughs> the race is ridiculous. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! He wants something. Uh, He's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you! What a moron. You're going in the wrong direction! You're going to kill somebody! Uh, message here in this particular situation you're going the wrong way and when you look at this and it, you know I mean the video is pretty funny right but we've got to ask ourselves how many times have we heard that message you're going the wrong way you know you're going to that refrigerator for maybe the fifth or sixth beer you know where, it, where it's going to eventually lead just think through the different situations in our lives where we've get, been given that direction maybe by somebody that's looking out for us, has our best intentions at heart. Or, or the scriptural passages we know when it comes to the warnings and the encouragement if we adhere to and listen to what God wants us to do. Does not our Creator know what's best for us? I mean, the very individual God who breathed life into our lungs probably knows what the best outcome is going to be based on decisions we make. You know, what was the message preached? You're going the wrong way. And this is what I love about Jesus Christ. He meets us exactly where we are. I'd like to put this out there to you this morning. Where are you right now? You know, from a religious standpoint, maybe you're feeling super spiritual. You're on a spiritual high right now. Jesus is there. Maybe this morning you're feeling just a little, meh meh. Not good, not bad, meh. Jesus is there. Maybe you're questioning this morning. Maybe you have doubts this morning. You're faithless, depressed. Maybe you're happy, maybe you're sad, whatever it may be. But Jesus is there. Where you are, there Jesus is. Jesus meets us where we're at. Which is amazing, which is awesome. And we can see it time and time and time again in the Bible, in the Gospels. Where are you this morning? Let's take a look at Matthew 19, verse 16. Now a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what, mu- what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the man's response, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Religious man. Came to the commandments, nailed them. Jesus met him where he needed to be met. Was it a checklist, or was it a matter of where his heart was at? And we've got to think about that today. Sometimes we can get sucked into just going through the motions. But is that what God wants? God wants our hearts. God wants that engagement. God wants that personal relationship. And we look at the young man here. Jesus tells him, his disciples were curious about where things were at. He tells his disciples, what's the issue? It's just exactly what was going on in the church of Corinth. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Do we see our needs? Nice house, nice car, money in the bank account. And we can get caught up in our own propaganda about how awesome we are. That was my thing for years, first 32 years of my life. Well, actually, once I entered the business world to the age of 32, I'm a self-made man. I did this all myself. I'm amazing. Yet the areas that were significant, the areas that were important, there were problems that were going on on a heart level. You know, we see this again with the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man appealing to Abraham. Now he's on the wrong side of the abyss in paradise. Appeals to Abraham to send Lazarus to visit his sons. And in that parable, what was, what was Jesus' response The message had already been brought to them by Moses and the prophets of old. He heard the message. But what was the response? Jesus goes on to say, even if someone were to rise from the dead, that the point would be missed because of our pride, our arrogance, our thoughts about how amazing we are in our own minds. So what about us here in 2017 today? What does it mean for us? What can we glean from this account? We need to go after God's word and godly people because the things of this world are always going to be pursuing us. You know, I would imagine for all of us, sometimes we think we're getting away with things. You know, teens, I remember being a teen. It was a a long time ago. Probably can't doubt that I can't even go back that far. Memory still sort of kind of works. You know, I remember thinking, man, I have my parents so fooled. And I'm sure some of you may think the same way. You know, you got your teachers fooled. You might even think you hey, have the Peckmans fooled. But you know what? The bottom line for all of us is you can't fool God. God knows exactly where you are. I've been there. You know, some of us come in thinking that today this is all it's about. If I can come in and look good, smile, interact amongst spiritual people, I'm good and then just kind of go out and do your own thing, once the service is over, God still knows. God doesn't, doesn't reside here. He knows what's going on. And we've got to, get care- we've got to be careful we don't, get, we don't get sucked into this mentality where we think that we can fool everybody, including God. And that's what was going on in the church in Corinth. They misunderstood grace. They thought grace gave them the permission to conduct their lives exactly the same way they were before they came into the kingdom of God. And that is Satan's unadulterated lie. Now, it's kind of funny. We can have a dinner engagement with friends in the church, and we bail 10 to 15 minutes beforehand. But I'd like to ask you, if it was a matter of meeting your boss for dinner, or a coworker. Which is still bail? Do we really appreciate and understand the significance of the relationships that we have here in the church? So that we have God's word and godly people that can help us to remember what the right message is. And the way we live our lives. So that when we get into a drift and we all go there. For those of you that have been around, you've heard about my drifts through the years. And they never have a good outcome. Unless I've got the humility to listen to someone who's in my life. This slaps me upside the head and says, Brother, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Do you love God? Do you love your wife? Do you love your kids? Satan loves us to buy into thinking we can do whatever we want to do, and nobody's the wiser. You know, we need to go after God's Word and godly people because the things of this world will continue to pursue us and drag us down. Sometimes we can feel just like the rich young ruler about our Christianity. Walking like Jesus—it's you know, challenging. When it's time to give up ourselves, make time to study the Bible with someone, making time to get someone in our lives for help, time to open the Bible, time when the baskets pass for the weekly offering, our missions offering—something happens. Well, I don't really have time to maintain friendships with godly people. I don't really have time to set aside an opportunity to study the Bible with someone that that wants to understand more about God. You know what? I just don't really feel like the weekly offering. I really don't feel like participating in special missions. Even though you know that there are people in need. There's this disconnect. See, we're called to be about a purpose. To be seekers and good news spreaders to the lost world and meet the needs of the poor. But some of you... As non givers, have walked away sad. You've walked away sad in your heart. You won't talk to anybody, but you know where you are on a personal level. You're adrift, unable to rejoice with God and the rest of us. You know, there may be times where Is God, God's just not really clear. I, I really don't know what, he, what his expectations are. I really don't know how to maintain a relationship. And you're looking for something more definitive, for a sign. And you feel like God's maybe a little bit like what we're going to see in this next video clip. Okay, God. You want me to talk to you? Talk back. Tell me what's going on. What should I do? Give me a signal. Oh, I need your guidance, Lord. Please send me a sign. Uh, what's this Joker doing now? Okay. Alright. I'll try it your way. Alright. Lord. I need a miracle. I'm desperate. I need your help, Lord. Please reach into my life. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. The... You know, it's kind of interesting. Things through time don't change. In verse 22, says, The Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews ask for signs. Thousands of years worth of preaching, enslavement, deliverance, and now God in the flesh, and they were not willing to see what was going on. You know, we might be like Bruce Almighty, looking for a sign and being so caught up, in our little world, we miss it. And for those of you that are younger and want to know what that thing was on his belt, that was something we used to communicate before we had cell phones. <laughs> Can't believe how old that movie is. I didn't realize it until I got to see that wonderful pager. But you know, we, we can be like Bruce Almighty. Smite me, almighty smiter! And then the way it closed out, don't know you, and I wouldn't call you if I did. Isn't this how we can be? Seeing? And I'm believing. You know, we have the death of Lazarus in John 11, verse 38. Where Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of Lazarus, the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I tell you that if you believed, you would, he would, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen cloth around his face and jesus said to them take off the grave clothes and let him go therefore many of the jews who had come to visit mary and had seen what jesus did put their faith in him but some of them went to the pharisees and told them what jesus had done and this just boggles my mind but probably shouldn't it says then the chief priests and the pharisees called a meeting of the sanhedrin what are we accomplishing they asked Here is this man, performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come out and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that spoke, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And it's amazing in this, he's right ultimately, but how wrong he was about his perspective based on the statement that he had just made. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one so that from that day on, they plotted to take his life. The very thing the Jews have been waiting for. And many witness in this particular situation have been delivered to them. And what happened? They wanted him dead. Verse 48, we see because of their arrogance and their personal agenda, and the fact that Jesus called them to follow him, true discipleship made them uncomfortable. They didn't want to give up what they had, so they missed it. They were so concerned about hanging on to this life that they couldn't recognize the very Messiah that they've been praying for for generations. You know, we can laugh at Jim Carrey and, you know, the the road signs there, all the things that were right there in his face. But how many of us have prayed for something thinking God didn't hear us, only to realize later that God did hear us and gave us the right answer? Maybe not the answer we were looking for, but the right answer. Or maybe we missed the signs and we're still praying for the repercussions of doing it our way rather than waiting on God. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-three it says, "But we preach Christ crucified as stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles." You know, do we really need anything more than this? Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. You know, I've been married for thirty-two years, and what I need to do is I need to boast in Christ crucified. Why am I my son and daughter's hero still to this day with all of my shortcomings? There's only one response for that. I must boast in the Lord. Why am I a minister of the gospel? It sure as heck isn't because my religious upbringing or seminary or all these incredible things that guided me to this point. The only thing I can do is boast in Christ Jesus crucified. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18 reads, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Let's see where I went here. Okay, there we go. Warren Wiersbe states, the world depends on promotion, prestige, and the influence of money. And important people. The church depends on prayer, the power of the Spirit, humility, sacrifice, and service. The church that imitates the world may seem to succeed in time, but it will turn to ashes in eternity. What a high price to pay. You know, the same same thing is exactly true for each and every one of us as disciples. The disciple who imitates the world may seem to succeed in time. We can look around at Christians out there in the world and think, why am I not being blessed the way they are? But if they're imitating the world, the bottom line is it's going to end the same way as it does in this quote. Ashes in eternity. What a high price to pay. See, worldly wisdom tells us that we're self-made and we can do whatever we want to do. I'm free to do anything that I want any old time. We've got to really be willing to take a self-assessment and see how that has been working for us. For those times that we trust in our own wisdom, we have 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. It says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance For I'm the least of the apostles, and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without an effect. I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him, in fact, The dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have some hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Something remarkable happened right here in this passage. Something never before seen. There were hundreds of witnesses to Jesus Christ. Hundreds of witnesses that were documented by the historians of the day. It changed history. No one else has been able to prove themselves with miracles, wonders and signs and ultimately then die and come back from the dead. None of the world's brilliant minds, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, none of them, none of the religious leaders throughout history have ever accomplished what Jesus did. Only through our Lord Jesus Christ can death be overcome. Paul goes on in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, We need to clothe ourselves with Christ. Where does that happen? Through the waters of baptism. When the perishable have been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers... And sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This victory that Paul's talking about, where does that lead us? What does that mean for us? Where does that victory lie? It's heaven, the ultimate reward. This is why our labor as Christians, as disciples, isn't in vain. No more suffering, no more pain, no more countdown to a meaningless death, but victory over death. Even in this life, it's not in vain. What we are promised, the hope that we have, the good news, the peace that we have, even in the midst of hard times and challenges, knowing that when we are walking with God, doing our best to walk like Jesus, we are victors that will receive the reward. I think the rewards was something that the people of Corinth understood. They understood the, the reward of hard work. They understood the reward of athletics. If you really went after things, there was a prize in store. How much more so dedicate yourself to Christ and the ultimate reward of all rewards? See so what we see in the Corinthian letters is the grace of God at work in the midst of difficult circumstances. This shows us, and this is the thing that excites me the most, that God never gives up on his people. Ever. He will never give up on us. You, me. And it shows us that he's not satisfied, though, when it comes to things like division, sin, doubt in the community of faith, our church. See, the people that God sends to bring us great are not always perfect either. Paul wasn't. He was very open about it. You know, I'm sure each of you can relate to that. I, you know, I I give some thought to this next sentence. I give a lot of thought to it. There's uh, nine translations that support what I was initially thinking about going to, and I decided it might not be the best thing to do, and I didn't want to have to have a talk with Andy afterwards. So this is the one I'm going with. But, you know, it's really amazing. If God can work through a talking donkey, did I make the right choice? Amen. If God can work through a talking donkey, He can work through us, amen? In the coastal Los Angeles region, in the South Bay Church, regardless of its challenges and imperfections, God has a vision of growing godliness and holiness and impact. And that that holiness is not to be achieved by withdrawing from sinners, withdrawing from a godless world, instead, it's the wisdom of God that needs to be pursued in this confusing storm, of conflicting culture that we are all a part of. Politics, the personalities, the values. Holiness is the thing that needs to be pursued in the world in which we still live today, in spite of all the craziness. God still wants and needs people who aren't perfect, but are willing to love and to pray and to suffer and sacrifice with their time and their money. To win over this lost world that we all live in, the question is, do we want God? Are we willing to embrace the foolishness of the cross? and close in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19. It says, "For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. May the study of First Corinthians equip each and every one of us to be better. Better equipped to be the kind of people that God calls us to, disciples of Jesus Christ, intelligent by God's standards, not the world's standards. Keeping in mind that the world is not our reward. This is not the great crown that was promised. Heaven for eternity is our great prize, and God is our great reward. God bless. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.